Welcome to this week's episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold. Conscious construction starts right now. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Modern Good. I'm your host, Busy Gold, and I'm here with Pamela Garfield Yeager, a licensed clinical social worker. She is from California, a state that we know is kind of a hotbed for a lot of the issues we're talking about today. She's got over 20 years in the mental health field. She's worked in a variety of settings that include community-based organizations, hospitals, group homes, schools, lockdown facilities, you name it. Pamela has also provided clinical supervision to therapists in training for 10 years. So Pamela, welcome to the show. It has been a few weeks of trying to get you on here. So welcome. We're glad to finally have you on. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being patient. I was driving cross country from Florida back to California. So I have no doubt that it will be absolutely worth the wait. We're excited to have you on the show. When I first found you on social media, I think I genuinely, maybe even two hours before I found you, was sitting by myself, frustrated at how few mental health professionals were willing to actually stand in the gap and say the truth. So I find often in my life, God answers prayers that way. When I kind of reach my hands out and I'm like, why is nobody saying this? Then all of a sudden I will, you know, happenstance find my way to somebody like you. So when I found your Instagram handle, so if anyone wants to look it up, it's at the truthful therapist. And I started to look into what you were doing. I was relieved. I was excited. And I knew that I had to get you on the show. Thank you. You know, I, I felt the same way. I found that video you made about how basically children under attack mentally, emotionally, psychologically, everything um, from all ends. And I really appreciated how you're looking at the whole picture of it. I'm very frustrated with people who are just fighting gender, just fighting critical race theory, just fighting masks. And they don't like all these pieces. I just think they all link. And that's not just everything. Well, and I think that's something that our audience is well aware of. And I believe we've done a good job of bringing together building blocks to help our audience have the critical thinking to piece all of it together. So I think Mm -hmm. on the show, that is always our focus. What system or agenda is operating behind things that might not seem on its face like they're connected. And I think this is really one of the best ways to equip people to move forward into the future and not become a victim to the agenda. You have to be able to see and describe what's happening accurately. And I think that's one of the major reasons that we find language under attack, right? So- In our world right now, we've got daily definitions that have been in existence for hundreds of years now just changing overnight, right? They just changed the woman one, I know. That just happened in between between we talked last time, I know. Yep, right. So we tried to film this podcast once before. We ran into tech issues and some other things. And then today, you wouldn't even believe it. But those of you that actually follow my podcast know that the more we get attacked with technology, the better the podcast actually is and the more important it is to our viewers. So I'm going to take all those as signs that today is important. So in between the week of when we tried to film and now, they quite literally updated the actual dictionary definition of female. So put that in your pipe and smoke it, audience. It takes seven days now. In the year 2022, it only takes seven days 
for something that drastic to just get updated and not really discussed. Like who decides to change the dictionary? How does that happen? Pamela, do you have any idea what the I don't process know. is to change the dictionary definition? Who is they? Who does Who this? is they? I know. Who gets to decide? I, I was actually thinking, you know, I, I went for a little run this morning. That's usually when I do a lot of my thinking. And I was actually, that came to my mind this morning, the definition and how a lot of everything is getting scrubbed because we live by the internet and they can just mm-hmm. change things on a hack. And I was thinking to myself, I wish I owned and my mother-in-law actually has this, you know, a real a dictionary, physical dictionary. Mm. a physical dictionary. I wish I, I'm like, I need to buy a dictionary just so before, I can. Just before it's too late. Before right? more stuff changes. Before uh, we because, start burning those and not making them anymore, we all need to go invest in an old school dictionary. Maybe go to like a thrift store or a Goodwill or something. Yeah. I mean, they've always added words, right? Like new pop culture words would be added like selfie for example was added mm-hmm. to the dictionary as a real word that our language evolves but i didn't i was like does it usually evolve in a way where they just change words like this like yeah change the so actual basic? definition of an existing word that's very i don't know strange. if that was happening before all all this new wave i don't know what you call it Ooh, this agenda. well i'm sure i'm sure at the end of today's episode we'll come up with some word to describe it But I think this idea that language is one of the things that's under attack right now, because if people can't describe something where they can't name it based in truth or rationale, then it's really easy for people to pull the wool over our eyes, right? So we've got kind of this culture where now there's no more truth, right? There's no right and wrong. There's no more logic. There's no more truth. It's my truth, your truth, et cetera. And now words themselves are being distorted and changed. The world that we are essentially creating right now in real time for our kids' generation is a very scary world. Do you agree? I 100% agree. Because yeah, there's the people here now that are possibly pulling the wool over their eyes, but then there's the the next generation that's growing up that's not going to know that it was changed because that's going to be just part of their world, part of their zeitgeist, right? That's the definition. So it's going to evolve this way where the reality that we know as adults are not the same, is not going to be the same reality that children grow up in as they grow up. It's, it is very scary. Have you ever, did you ever read The Giver? I have not read that, no. So it's something that we've talked about before on the show. And I think that really sets the stage for exactly what we're experiencing right now. So I'll, I'll give you kind of a two second brief overview and also to people in the audience that haven't heard me talk about this before. So the, mo- the Well, it's a movie and a book. I had to read the book. It's by Lois Lowry, I believe. So in The Giver, it's a future society where they've protected the environment. They move everybody into these smart cities all together, and they've gotten rid of anything that makes a person unique. So everyone's just, they're given a name at birth by the government, and you're no longer raised by parents. You're raised by basically caregivers that are assigned for you by the government. You're grown in a lab. And to leave your house every day, you basically have to put your hand up and get an injection. And in their society, they have completely changed their language. And the big thing here is that they're all programmed to hold each other responsible for precise language. So if you use a word that is outside of their words that they are allowed to use, you'll get scolded by someone, precise language, precise language. We don't use that word, precise language. But really what's happening is that precise language is what keeps people shielded from reality, right? If they have to operate only in these words or these definitions, it alters their entire perception of the world around them. We come to find out later in the book, these 
kids are also programmed to commit murder, but they don't know that it's murder because they think that they're releasing something to the elsewhere. So when they're injecting even things like babies and killing babies, they don't, they don't understand that they're murdering because to them, they're releasing something to elsewhere. So this just shows if you have a generation that's far enough removed from the actual truth, a child can be taught to murder something and believe that they're doing something perfectly fine. I'm releasing this baby to elsewhere because it wouldn't have been able to survive in our world. So that is essentially, you know, that's where we're going here is that if we keep messing with language and we keep altering actual reality for these future generations, they quite literally could be led to do things that we would all sit here right now and say are completely wrong and evil, and they would never know. If you program a child that young, they would never know because they don't know anything else. I find that to be like the scariest piece of where we are today. You just gave me the chills. Um, you, it's really scary because I see that happening right now. I mean, you, you saw that last year when people were basically telling those who didn't get the vaccine that they deserve to die, things yep. like that. I, I, things I never thought I would hear in my lifetime. Um, and it's still happening now where there's still vaccine passports and people are being shunned. And there's these lies that certain groups are being attacked when they're not. And then other groups who are being discriminated against, it's being ignored. It's just, we're living in this alternate universe and this simulation, I'd say. And, and yeah, yeah, and it's the children. That's what been my kind of my message. It's the children I'm most concerned about because they're the ones growing up in this. They don't know any different. I feel so grateful that I grew up at a time where the internet didn't exist and this, this mentality didn't exist. So we have something to compare it to. We have that measuring stick to actual reality. And I believe that's why there's such a push to get parents onboarded with this language and this new agenda so that they actually become the mouthpieces for it. And it's almost like if their mind tries to go back to, wait, but I was taught this or, but this was the truth before, that's where the cancel culture comes in and, and incentivizes them to essentially turn away from everything they actually know to be true deeply in their DNA. So we just see this kind of sweeping through. I know so many people that I know are good people, I know are intelligent, that have quite literally just become mouthpieces for the agenda. And when they say something, I, there's that part of me, I know that they don't believe what they're saying. They couldn't possibly believe what they're saying. And yet it's still flying out of their mouth with passion. That to me is, I mean, that's programming, right? Yeah, I really do wonder. I, I mean, I could tell a little vignette when I was working last year. I'm, I'm unfortunately not working anymore because of the mandate, um, but I was working in a day treatment program for teens and adults. I was sort of afloat between the different populations and I was shadowing an, a therapist and she was introducing me to how they do the groups. And we went into the adult group, we led the group. And then when we went into the teen group, she explained to me, here we introduce with pronouns. And I, was, I wasn't even, I wasn't as awake then as I am now. Now I'm much more awake, but I was awake enough to know that this, there was, this was concerning. And I asked her, well, why do we do pronouns with the kids and not with the adults? And she just looked at me blankly and said, I don't know, I hadn't thought about it. And I think that's the summary, I think, of a lot of people. It's just when it's just around them and there's this group think or an authority like the management or the profession embraces it, people just don't think anymore. And that's what I'm noticing. And that's what's scary. Well, and I think some of it is that they're 
many caregivers or therapists, paramedical professionals likely go into those professions because they have a heart for healing, right? They have a heart for people to want to be well, to be supported, et cetera. So I've always believed that the easiest way to get these agenda pieces put into place is to essentially co-opt the a group identity or a group that everyone can acknowledge has some sort of struggle in our world. And then they take advantage of your heart for people and they just say, well, this is good for them. This is what's helping them. And because you're supposed to have a good heart and have a heart for people, they just assume, and in many cases they're correct, that you won't take that step into cognitive dissonance and ask questions because you've just been told this helps people. So you don't ask questions because you're told that this is what's in their best interest, right? Because you you just want to do what's right for those people. And if you're not part of that group identity, we're also told you can't think about or problem solve for a group that you're not a part of, right? So now you're essentially told you can't even think about what that group's perspective could be because you're not in that group. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to see even this like other separation, which we were just talking about, which I plan to get into in today's episode, that even within the transgender community, many people that actually do have true gender dysphoria, like DSM, classic case gender dysphoria, they're actually the ones now that are being silenced because they're speaking up saying, hey, something doesn't quite match here. This is not the experience that I had. And now they're being silenced and pushed out of their own in-group. Have you seen that in your experience, both online and in day-to-day life in your job? Yeah, I mean, I I just saw on Twitter yesterday that Blair White, who is a conservative transgender woman, has been shouted out as anti-LGBT hateful because she used the term groomer against people who are grooming children. (laughs) So she just tweeted that yesterday. Um, so there's an example. There were two other people on this hit list who were also gay, who are apparently hateful towards gay people, which doesn't make any sense. And we know it's because they're not towing the line of the narrative. And so they're they're being silenced. We see this with Black people, too. If Black people don't tow the line, if they say, I'm not a victim here, then they're an Uncle Tom, they're a traitor. So it, when you're not, when you're a part of these minority groups that, that are supposedly have this these points these this like a talking um, point sort of thing that you're supposed to uphold for the group yeah if we're supposedly Mm -hmm. supposed to care more about these groups which I honestly don't believe doing this anymore I feel like these identity politics are really harmful and divisive but if that's that if that's the how we're gonna do it then when someone speaks up then and they don't say what they're supposed to say and then they're silenced that just goes to show how the whole thing is hypocritical um but yeah I've seen that a lot um I've spoken directly to Buck Angel, who really believes strongly. um, He's a transgender female to male who thinks that these, you know, people who identify as non-binary don't, he doesn't identify with that. That's not what, that's not his experience. That's not the same thing. Maybe it should be under a different category, but he feels like it's, it's belittling his experience, which was very painful and difficult. And he went through a, a long process to decide on what to, you know, what would be the best course for him. So yeah, he spoke to me directly about that. And I got a lot of messages from people who say that sort of thing, that they, they're silenced or they're afraid to say anything, or when they do say something, they're, they're shunned by their own community, people that they felt supported them. It's just, yeah, they don't toe the line. And, and I really do believe, I, I did a video on this on the harms of pronouns. And one of the things I listed was, 
when we say to all children, you can use these new pronouns, that I, I feel like it's actually harmful to the people it's supposed to help because mm-hmm, then they get lost in the shuffle. So if every single child gets to now decide every day that they're a new identity they're, or they could be an animal or something like that, then a child who's really experiencing gender dysphoria, whether they're gonna desist or not, like, but if they're feeling that for whatever reason, and maybe it could be other underlying issues like trauma, either way, those children get lost in it and those that need support for and for whatever course that is work, will work for them in their entire life they're not they're no longer getting looked at because i mean just last year and i know that the numbers increased half the girls identified as non-binary in the program i worked at so i don't believe all those girls were truly having gender dysphoria a lot of them were non-binary for other reasons a lot of it was about attention or power or avoiding other issues that they were struggling with. And so then if there were a real kid that was struggling with gender dysphoria, you wouldn't know because there's so many, it's like a whole bunch of people crying wolf. So this brings up, and it's perfect that you just segued there because we just recently did an episode that launches uh, this week actually called the narcissist and the victim. And in that episode, we talk about the boy who cried wolf and in specifically in relation to people that perceive themselves to be victims, right? We know that where we are societally right now, we've put victim centric culture up on a pedestal. So you get excuses, passes, you get, you know, access to more in groups by being a victim or by finding somebody that you believe to be predatory to your identity. So in, in this sort of culture experience that we're having, where people are now actually desiring to be victimized in some way, or at least incentivized to see their experience through the lens of that victim narrative, what it actually does is it takes away the ability for people who are trained to spot victims. It takes away their ability to actually find people that are being victimized. So we use the example of you know, in the school setting, people are trained to spot people that are being abused at home or being sexually abused. How on earth are we supposed to do that right now? It was already challenging, but now everybody's victim. Now everybody has trauma. It is making it nearly impossible for the people that are actually being abused and neglected at home to get that the help that they need in the school system or by another care provider. So it really, it's the same thing, right? It just it minimizes or takes away from the people whose experience is very deep and very real. And it's using their experience to essentially pull, cast this broad net and pull a bunch of other people into it. Yeah, I 100% agree. And then going back to what you're saying about language, the language of trauma has been sort of bastardized, right? Everyone's now saying they're being triggered every moment. Um, I, I even personally, I was angry about something legitimately. I was angry. I didn't do anything unhealthy. I didn't lash out. I just was angry. And then someone said, are you triggered? So I was actually <laughs> used, the word was used against me, which made me more angry, obviously. You're like, well, I wasn't <laughs> then, but now I'm triggered by you asking me that. <laughs> but it, it, the, and this was a man who's not, generally is not, uh, I'd say in the know about therapy. It's weird to be a, someone who's been a therapist since the mid nineties. And I was actually raised by a therapist. So I've had these therapy words around me my whole life, for better or worse. And but it's weird to hear people who wouldn't normally use these words just throw them at me because now they're used as these layman's terms when there's actually really serious words. 
triggered is a, a serious word for people who have real trauma or have a real psychological response to something. They might dissociate, they might do something dangerous, or they might cut or self-harm something, right? You, they might have something really challenging happen to them. It's not just someone's a little mad or um, someone doesn't is uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable is not being triggered. And so and it seems these, like we've done the same thing, not just with triggered, but the word narcissist with the word toxic relationship, right? All, all of these words everything. are actually now trauma. Being, yeah. All of it. The word trauma. Everyone's like, I'm traumatized. I'm traumatized. I'm traumatized. I actually really, I have to watch myself because I'm feeling a little traumatized right now being in California with the masks, but I don't really want to use that word because I don't want to belittle that. I mean, it's not the same thing as someone who's had true trauma. I mean, there's degrees of it, of course, but I just, the fact that people are using these words so willy nilly, it waters them down so that when someone has real trauma, it's, it's no longer recognized. And I think it's overblown in lots of cases and then it's underblown because, because our language is being misused. And do you think that people now being actually taught in these different mental health fields, right? Like people that are going toward a, you know, licensed clinical social worker, PhD. Do you think that now with the new generation that is being taught right now, they are being taught to bulk all of these things together and perhaps not necessarily draw those stark contrast lines? Yeah, I don't think they're being taught real skills. They're being taught a lot of social justice garbage, in my opinion. I mean, I look at the web, I've been looking at the websites and actually people who are in school have been messaging me and telling me what they're learning, which I did learn some of this to a lesser degree. And I've now I'm questioning a lot of things that I learned, but I did learn clinical skills. But yeah, I think all of this is being watered down in school. They're not learning real skills. They're learning how to, I mean, they're learning, they, they're learning to check their privilege. Um, most therapists are still white women. And so they're walking around with white guilt. So they're now entering a therapy session, perhaps with a minority saying, I'm here to check my privilege and you're a victim. Not very empowering to their clients. They're obviously learning to affirm anybody who even brings up gender. And I'm, I'm even learning from people who are seeing therapists that they didn't even bring up gender themselves, but the, the, therapist, the therapist brings it up. Will bring mm -hmm. it up yep. and kind of change the mind of the, or influence the client. And they're learning that in school. They, somebody actually just told me that in, in their social work program that they went to a training or they were forced to go to a training to learn how to write letters to affirm people they haven't even met or maybe met once. There's actually trainings on how to write affirmative care letters there. That is not something I ever learned in grad school. So um, let's let's go back to a couple of the foundations before we continue this on, because I think we're we're starting to get into some areas that I want us to go into with a little bit of foundation. So if we look at just the mental health space as a whole, what are your three biggest concerns? So not just in specific to gender dysphoria or the non-binary non community, but what are your top three concerns globally with where the mentor, mental health sector is heading right now? Oh my gosh. So one of the biggest things that what we were just saying is about how we're not actually treating mental health issues and we're, we're addressing things that aren't mental health issues. So this flip-flop of minimizing um, serious things, serious mental health issues, and making a big deal out of things that aren't 
mental health issues, um, normal things like puberty or normal experiences like breaking up or I feel like we're actually, the mental health system is actually breaking down resilience for people instead mm. of improving it, um, which is the opposite of what mental health is supposed to be. Um, so that piece. And then my other concern is just the, the um, breakdown of family, like how we're, I think the mental health field has this attitude that they know better than parents when, when it comes to the mental health of children and youth in families. So I've always been trained, even in, even in very left-leaning areas, I actually went to a, a year-long therapy, family therapy training in Berkeley, California, um, about really keep working with the families, even if, if you would call them dysfunctional, but the, it would be about keeping the families together and working with the parents and not thinking you're the therapist and you know best and dividing families. So the division of families, the division in general, is a major concern. I, I mean, I guess in general, just the ideological capture of our field, that our field is no longer treating people as individuals, treating them as for what the problems they have, but the therapists are projecting what they should be doing with their clients. I, I feel like it's such a, a big problem. So it's almost like they're projecting a label or what they think they're going to find. So they're essentially priming the experience to go in a very specific direction. Yeah. The client. And, and, and I just say also in general, the lack of skills, I mean, we're, people aren't being trained like they were there. I mean, I think it's good to have short-term therapy, but now it's the point where therapy is not even therapy anymore. It's, it's, it's a feel good session. They're not addressing underlying issues. And we went from being to, I think we went from being too analytical in a way, like kind of the Freudian, you know, anal, analyzing things to the point where now we're just like, well, let's just affirm everything. And I'm not just talking about gender. I'm talking about in general, like mm -hmm. just always this, I need to validate the client. I need to make people feel good. A lot of like short-term, short-term fixes or short feeling good in the short term, like, oh, your, your feelings are valid or your truth, like you said earlier, instead of actually addressing the real issues that are going on and looking at the whole picture. There, I just see that the therapists are not looking at the full picture. And I think maybe I have a good recent example that for anyone that's trying to imagine how this might go down in a therapy office, I work in a therapeutic boarding school for teens. And I was part of a meeting where I was meeting with one of my students' therapy team, and they were talking about how this particular student has spent the last six or so weeks talking about their shame mask. And I stopped the conversation and kindly asked them if they truly believe that client that is what we're discussing actually experiences shame. And she took a moment and said, well, no, I don't think she really does. And I said, okay. So uh, my perspective of her is this person actually has trouble experiencing any sort of empathy for other people. And to feel shame, you actually have to care deeply about who you might've harmed with your actions. So I'm curious why you would let this client spend six weeks talking about an emotion that you don't actually believe they experience. And she said, well, I just don't think she's ready to hear that yet. So I think this kind of wraps it all up with a bow is that really the client is able to essentially right now steer the entire trajectory of their healing. If we even want to call it that, because I don't actually believe that's what therapy is going toward right now. I don't actually think that's their 
end goal? Do you think that that's the end goal of therapy anymore to heal? Well, the therapy that you're describing, definitely no. I'm trying not to be so negative because I do talk to I who, people who I believe are ethical therapists or maybe mm-hmm. more traditional who really do believe in healing, but they're more in hiding and they're, they're not as outspoken. And that's not what we're hearing in the mainstream. So I think there are healers, good healers. Oh, absolutely. I think the yeah, question is, though, do, do, you think, do you think that's, I think the question here is not, do they exist? Because I, I certainly believe they do exist. And I think part of the reason we're even doing this podcast, and my hope is to hopefully incentivize them to come out of hiding because the world really needs you right now. I think the question is more, do we feel that that is where the mental health sector right now is moving toward? Are they no longer trying to heal? They're trying to move toward affirming and coping and essentially just taking your label and now putting up bumpers around society so that you can use your label to no longer engage in a way that could make you oppose your pattern and heal. Yeah, I definitely believe that the profession is captured. I think that there isn't an agenda to train people to not provide real therapy, to not empower individuals to make good choices for themselves, to not build healthy relationships, to not find fulfilling things in their life. I think that therapy now is about feeling good in the short term, which ends up crashing in the long term. And yeah, I think our, I think our profession is, is definitely on the downturn. And honestly, I don't think it's always been great the whole time. I agree. I I think it's always been this way. It's just the ramp has just sped up really quickly in this direction. And I think there was some wiggle room before. And now, I I mean, if I were starting out now, there's no way I could make it through grad school. I'm I actually have a chronic disability, so I can't work full time. I don't know if I could last in an agency. I actually just had a recruiter from Stanford message me and I kind of laughed at it. Like there's no way I would last there because it'd be so hard to be in this environment that I know is so captured, so much ideology is being pushed that it goes against my values. So for sure, um, it's coming from all ends. And I don't think that our, our profession, well, it might feel like to some people who are in it that they're healing because it feels good in the moment. Just because something feels good is not actually healing, right? I mean, we could eat a bunch of sugar or have a drink and it feels good, but is that actually healing in the long term? Usually not. I mean, so. in my in my experience, the most profound healing and breakthrough that I've seen time and time again comes via pain and coming face to face with your own BS in a way that we call it in break method reality vertigo, where when you finally have to sit with it face to face, it actually makes you question every experience you've ever had, because you've actually realized that that lens has always been part of your experience. And when you first see it removed, it, it makes you feel like you're going crazy to me. That is healing. When you finally get to take off those glasses and see the world objectively for the first time and realize that possibly a personality disorder or some other mental health issue has been essentially distorting your perception of reality for X amount of years that you've been alive. Like that's healing. And that doesn't feel good. Usually in my experience, that client will go through multiple rounds of hating you. Like I preface with all my clients, there will be multiple times. I will not be your favorite person. I've had people get up and try to punch me. I've had people crumple up their paperwork, throw it at me, tell me to go F myself. And they always come back and they're always like, I really needed to hear that. I just really didn't want to hear it in that moment, but there would not have been a good moment, right? A lot of the way our brain pattern works is it will 
actually make us stop the process of healing and label it as something that's bad because the brain doesn't actually want to heal. It wants to stay stuck where it is. That's what feels safe. Or it doesn't want to feel the pain, right? Yeah. I mean, but we have to face it if we're stuck. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. You just described kind of the traditional cognitive behavioral therapy term, which is called reality testing. I mean, you described it in a much fancier way, but that's, that's the other thing. I mean, it's, we used to, that's something that was kind of, uh, acknowledged as something that helps a lot of people it's not for everyone but it helps so many people it's just doing the reality testing looking at how things are distorted and now that's being taken away being eradicated even dialectical behavioral therapy which has a little more of a nuanced way of looking at things to look at things you know in a more balanced way even still that's the i'd say the culture and therapy is not no longer embracing that they're teaching DBT in groups and then they tell kids or tell, tell clients that they're okay being victims or that they can get away with all these things and that they don't need to face these problems because they're weak and we don't, we don't want to hurt them or something like that. So well, and that's where I think it goes back to something you said previously, which is one of the biggest issues is that it feels like therapy is no longer trying to build up emotional resiliency, which I thought was a really great way of putting it, because that is essentially what our culture and our society is losing, right? We're no longer being incentivized to be resilient. And I think a few of the things we've talked about go back to this idea of pendulum swinging. And we've talked before on the podcast about what I see to be generational phases of how we approach healing and how that tends to pendulum swing us. So we talked about how for a lot of our grandparents in previous generations, mental health was in what we call the hiding phase. So everything was behind closed doors. You didn't tell anyone you're in therapy. You know, maybe people were even put into mental institutions, right? It was very much secretive and no one discussed it. Then I believe we moved through a pendulum swing to the bonding phase where now to try to calculate or atone for our sins in the hiding phase, now everything is about you know, wearing your mental health label openly and we're all broken and getting people to actually trauma bond in whatever their label is. So I feel like this is one of the major ways that we've gotten ourselves stuck in this normalization of mental health issues because I think, you know, kind of like you were saying, now people are trained to show up in their sessions and atone for their white guilt and privilege before they even start the conversation. If we keep living in this pendulum swing environment, we're never actually going to be able to do what is truly best for human beings. So I think that's one of the opportunities that we have in front of us right now, which to me is moving to what I call the motivation phase, which is we're saying like, yeah, we all have some brokenness, but we all can work together to hold each other accountable and start to move toward healing rather than using whatever emotional wound is as a badge of honor or as a get out of jail free card, which it seems like seems to happen in that bonding phase. Yeah, for sure. And I think because therapists now have, I don't know, less, the lack of training, I'd say, I mean, I've I've been a supervisor for 10 years, as you said earlier. And one of the biggest things I do as a supervisor is to help that therapist look at themselves and look at what they're projecting onto their clients. It's called counter-transference or transference. So they might be projecting their own experiences onto that client, which I see happening all the time with teachers and counselors, like this rescue fantasy that's happening, Mm -hmm. or they're projecting feelings like that are displaced that maybe they're feeling it, that experiences they've had as a child, like if their dad yelled at them and they have a client that reminds them of their dad or 
they have a, a working with a teenager where their dad is yelling at them that they just displace what their pain is onto the, the client instead of being able to separate their experiences. So then what the individual needs gets lost. And so if we have therapists that don't have that kind of training and don't have a supervisor that's gonna help challenge the therapist too, because the therapists need to be challenged. The therapists don't need to be affirmed all the time either. None of us need to be affirmed. We all need to be challenged to be better people and do the best work we can. And we're all human, we're infallible. That's, I always believed that my profession had this humility that we don't know it all and that we're always looking to get ourselves out of the way. And I don't believe that's happening anymore. And that's, I think that's what's getting lost. Well, and perhaps that's because we've really shifted away from teaching people how to think critically. And we're really just moving more toward indoctrination and don't ask questions. And this is what you do. These are the ramifications if you choose to challenge this. So no one's actually incentivized to challenge anything. That's in, fact, true. in fact, it probably feels like their career's at risk if they challenge anything or even ask the question. Yeah. And so there's that. So there's all the silencing. So people either they, they are having the thinking and they're, they're holding it back or they decide to just stop thinking because if they do, it's too painful to keep having to believe, re recognize that what they're doing is goes against what they believe. So they kind of just shut it down. Um, it's scary. I'm still thinking back to that movie and that book you described you, earlier because you have to watch it. It's, it's so dark and visually that's to me what really makes it so bone chilling is it looks like this perfect world right Meryl Streep is the female they've got a female president there's no more violence there you know they've saved the planet all these things but really they've actually become the most evil version of humanity possible and you know I'm not going to ruin it for you but the whole premise of the movie is that because they're, none of them are allowed to have collective memory, like they don't have any memory at all. It's been wiped on purpose. There's one person in the society that is given all of the memories of their previous generations to hold, and they basically have to be separated from society. So they choose a new person that's going to actually receive all these memories, and then I'll leave the rest to you. Everyone go watch the movie. It is, I remember I had to read it in, I believe, sixth grade maybe seventh grade. So listen to this seventh grade lineup because this would never happen, y'all. I went to a very hoity-toity prep school in Connecticut, which just recently made its way onto Project Veritas. I posted it on my Instagram. There was some middle school English teacher who was not my middle school English teacher because I'm quite old now um, that did some incredibly inappropriate things. So just to show you, this is absolutely everywhere, including my hoity-toity prep school. So in this one year of English, we did A Handmaid's Tale, which if anyone's ever read that book, like you think the Hulu series is bad. That book is devastating. As a, you know, 12-year-old girl reading that book, it is absolutely a devastating read. So Handmaid's Tale, 1984, um, Animal Farm, uh, this one that we're talking about, The Giver, and then there were two more like Fahrenheit 451. It literally was like a whole year of dystopian futuristic novels that I'm sure now are all banned. I'm sure they're all banned books. I do remember reading, yeah, some of those in school too. Um, 
I'm older too. If you um, go to Barnes and Noble, almost every single book I just described is actually on the banned books list. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I remember reading Animal Farm in school. I remember reading The Scarlet Letter in school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did Scarlet Letter too. Um, I'm trying to remember what else, but yeah, a lot of books that have these these life lessons that, as a naive kid, and honestly, naive most of my life, I thought, well, that's that could never happen in my lifetime. And I don't believe that anymore. It's just, it, it is really scary. And it, and that's why I felt like I had to step up because specifically I saw this happening in the mental health field. Everybody's talking about the teachers and the education system, which we know is horribly corrupt, especially the public schools. But they weren't talking much about the mental health field. But we're, people are starting to recognize it more now. But I'd say a year ago, it wasn't even mentioned. And I was, I was thinking to myself, I feel like the therapists are actually in a way doing more damage because they're they're taking the vulnerable who can't who can't I mean when you're when you're in a severe distress and you're vulnerable and you're with a therapist who's in kind of an authority position they can really mold people to do some horrible things to themselves and to make really bad choices so that and as a person who believed that my whole life that I chose a job because I want to help people and I was among community or a group or a profession that was about helping people, at least for the most part. I mean, they're always bad therapists. They're just like, there's always bad anything. But I thought as a whole, my profession was doing good work. And now it's really hard to admit, this has been my unveiling, like you just described, that the thing that I dedicated my whole life to, a lot of my identity, quite frankly, is hurting people like really badly and has been for a long time. And I didn't know it. It's really scary. Well, that's a pretty powerful testimony and something that you're willing to share publicly. And again, my hope is that this actually motivates other therapists to maybe come out of the closet and start to maybe explore some some things and maybe look back at moments of your career in retrospect now with a slightly different perspective. Because I do work with a ton of therapists in my job with Break Method. I have colleagues that are mental health professionals. I know that there are people out there, but I think as we've been talking about, they're they're afraid to say anything. They're afraid to lose their livelihood. They're afraid to be attacked. And I think that we're at a tipping point right now where I completely understand that people need finances to be stable to survive. At the same time, I'm wondering if this is kind of like that, you know, we've only, sometimes you can only break it from the inside so far, and then you have to start realizing, oh, well, maybe we actually have to create some sort of external or new system because trying to break it from the inside isn't working, or maybe perhaps just isn't working fast enough. Because I feel, I don't know about you, but I certainly feel like there's sand running out of an hourglass. And if we don't do something to speed up the velocity of change right now, I don't know that society can recover. Yeah, no, I I try not to go there because it overwhelms me. I I can get really overwhelmed by it. Um, I do, so a little bit of a personality. I'm not one to be a public speaker. I've actually, I've always been really scared of public speaking. I've always been kind of the quiet one. I actually really like photography because I have that, behind the scenes kind of personality. Um, But I I went through four years of having this disability where I was literally bedridden and went through this medical odyssey. And that changed me a lot to teach me about, I guess, gratitude for being able to do things and be a part of society because I was basically 
stripped from being from society. Then I got better enough to get back to my profession only part-time for a job that I'm very overqualified for because I can't even, I can't sit at a computer and work a full eight hour shift every day. So then I finally got back and I was literally crying to my new supervisor how, how meaningful it was for me to be back among my colleagues and to be in this. But of course, all this stuff was happening uh, with the gender stuff and they're still masking today. All the victim mentality was being reinforced. There was all these things I was, problems I was seeing, but I was only per diem and I didn't have much of a voice. And then they, they threw in the mandate. And after all the medical things I went through, I, I couldn't, I, I didn't do it. So I felt like, so that took me out, but I feel like what, what it ended up doing was it kind of emboldened me. I feel like perhaps, and I'm not even that religious to be honest, but I feel like I have some kind of calling. I feel like I've been put in this position for a reason. I don't I know do. if it's spiritual or not, but I feel like I, I'm getting emotional right now because I feel like I, I see how hard it is to speak out. And I, I wonder if I wasn't, if I didn't have this situation where I had honestly a lot less to lose because I've been on disability. I've honestly lost a lot of my friends just from being on disability. I learned who people were and it wasn't so pretty. And um, so I I just realized I, I, I need to step up. I was listening to conservatives speak and other people speak on issues. And I realized there was no mental health person. There was no mental health voice. There's been a few now that have stepped up at this point, especially on the gender issue, but I don't, not sure there are that many just as a whole. Um, and I just felt like I had to be the one to do it. If not anyone, it, it had to be me, even though I'm shy and I'm not a good speaker, I'm getting better. <laughs> you are, you're doing great. But the point is, is that I feel like I have this calling and I've had a lot of people message me that because I've been out speaking that I, I have encouraged them or it is an, influence them to speak up or talk to their supervisor about how they didn't want to put pronouns in their bio or do something that goes against their their uh, values so yeah it, it's definitely the time to speak up I do resent that I'm no longer on the inside because I do think there is something to be said for people on the inside being able to influence from the inside I feel like I'm being people like me are being weeded out and that's unfortunate I think eventually what's going to have to happen is the institutions will collapse and we'll have to build new ones, but that's, there's going to be a lot of collateral damage in the process. That's kind of how I see it going in the long run. But yeah, it's, it is, it is hard. And I just felt like I had this calling. I had to speak up. And I think other people who can speak up should, I don't know if it's on the internet, maybe just speaking to colleagues, speaking to people in their life. I, I think it's important. I do think that's important. And I think it's great that you mentioned that there's more than one way to do this. It doesn't have to be starting an Instagram account, right? I think sometimes people find that the only way to somehow walk out your purpose now is in a public setting like Instagram. Like you said, this could be starting up a conversation with a colleague over coffee in the break room and just testing the environment saying like, hey, have you thought about this? Does this sound weird to you? That can start to move the needle forward too. And I feel like a lot of those conversations are also what's silenced right now. And that's why I think because people are compartmentalized and no one's really openly speaking of those things, 
that ripple isn't ever getting started, right? Everyone's just kind of their own little lonely island, maybe watching a documentary at home being like, does anyone else ever think about this? But they're too afraid to speak to a colleague or like you said, speak to a supervisor. So I do think it's great to remind people, this doesn't have to be an Instagram account, y'all. Like this could be being emboldened to have a conversation or to ask a question that maybe you're not asking. Could it get you fired? Let's be real. It could actually get you fired. So I want to preface this, asking that question could actually get you fired, but would it be worth it? Possibly. I mean, my my advice to people is to start an off-ramp, get an off-ramp so that you're not, you can support your family and Mm -hmm. start a private practice or maybe start some Etsy store, (laughs) start some, you know, whatever the thing is, start an off-ramp so that you have other sources of income so that if, if this happens, because Let's face it, you could get canceled anyway, even if you don't do anything, because that is true. <laughs> they're, they're, that's the way things are. And they have a whole lineup of new fresh grads to replace people who are not part of this group thing, unfortunately. And there are alternative formats out there, like Break Method, where we are constantly bringing on and training mental health professionals. So if you're in a place where you know something's up and you know that whatever pathway you're currently walking out is not quite right, give us a ring. That's exactly what we do. And we there always have go. openings on our team. And yeah, and we need more entrepreneurs that are going to start more things just like that. Right. Yeah. And so I think that's more. what I was trying to get across about the, sometimes we can't break it from the inside or we can't break it from the inside fast enough. So people have to be willing to say like, you know what, let's go against the green here and do something completely wild. I absolutely get tons of hate from mental health professionals who have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars on their career because they don't want me to be able to exist. Unfortunately, I do exist. And unfortunately, Break Method does exist. And it's very successful and and has a really incredibly high level of efficacy. Coming out of Break Method, 93% of people on their exit have all of their symptoms. We have a rating scale between zero and five. Zero would be debilitating. They actually can't function in their life. And five being it no longer exists. We have 93% of people leave out of four or five for all of their incoming symptoms. So there are alternatives out there that exist. And those alternatives are not your enemy. They might actually be the thing that gives you the off-ramp that you're talking about. So I think that's kind of my two cents to mental health professionals out there. Alternatives are not your enemy. They're not trying to replace you. They're trying to call you in so that you can join a team that's actually willing to move the needle in a potentially different direction and isn't trying to just toe the line of the agenda. Yeah, it's wonderful that you have that. And I hope more and more people, I mean, I started my parent education thing in a similar way, like where I just felt like I had to build something to give people education on what's appropriate mental health care so that they're armed to find the right therapist for their families. So yeah, the more and more people have these ideas. And I mean, I am seeing some alternate people, but obviously they're still in the minority. Um, but the more people that do that, the more the people, if you have an idea, you know, go for it. <laughs> if it's, if it's, if it's, if, if, interestingly enough, I mean, you, you look at any millionaire, billionaire, or just very successful person, it's because they had an idea and they went with it. They didn't just go along and put their heads down and do things against their values. The people that are really successful are the ones that do interesting things. I mean, there's all these opportunities, I feel like. There's, there's like half the population or more that just won't go to therapy because they don't trust it. So they're looking for, I can't tell you how many messages I get looking for a therapist that they can trust that's not going to turn their daughter into a boy um, or 
it's not going to play into victim mentality or not going to, you know, not going to just the, the toxic masculinity piece. Not, I mean, especially men, men have a hard time finding a therapist. that's not going to tell them, well, you're mansplaining or you should listen to your wife because she knows, you know, because you're, your masculinity is too toxic and you need to, you know, listen to what women have to say. Um, Perhaps that, that's why 60% of my clients in the last two years have been men. All of a sudden we've seen this complete shift where now we have tons of men coming into break method. And I think in general, our approach, we're very front facing about the fact that we are not going to just buy into your narrative or story. And the way your brain pattern functions is such that no matter what, everyone's operating in some level of self-deception. So break method is built to bypass that and actually get to the truth as quickly as possible. So I think no matter what, that was already built to make sense to a man, but certainly over the last year and a half to two years, we've seen a massive uptick in men coming into the program a lot because of what you're saying. Like one of our, one of our Facebook ads that was by far the best performing was, are you getting a called are you getting called a narcissist and you don't know why? So when people come in to what we do in break method, a lot of times they have had that experience where perhaps a therapist has turned their wife against them, right? Oh, well, your husband, it sounds like you're in a toxic relationship, right? You should just cut that relationship out. I think a lot of that's what's happening in the mental health space, including kind of going back to what you're talking about with parents. I find a lot of therapists turn the kids against their parents. Yes. That's the biggest thing. That was the, that was the most alarming piece of all of it. That was the part where I was like, that, and that's what inspired me to write this Parents Guide to Mental Health. And that's my biggest message to parents out there is that you should be involved in the therapy. Amen. If a therapist says, you, I need to keep secrets from you or I, I, my confidentiality with your child is most important and they won't tell you anything or share anything or just talk to you and listen to your point of view, that's a huge red flag. And a therapist should be looking to work with the family. I mean, even what's crazy is, so their, their point of view is, oh, well, there's bad parents out there and I need to help these kids with their, you know, these terrible parents. Well, it's true there. I mean, there are parents that are, no parent is perfect. And I gotta be honest, I have a lot of years of experience and I've worked with some challenging parents. That's true. But part of my, my expertise is to help them, to support them. And honestly, even getting to know those parents, if we want to call them bad parents, it helps me inform me of what's going on with that child. So if a, a therapist won't even speak to you, speak to the parent, that's, that's just malpractice in my opinion, because they need to know what's going on to be able to make a, a proper assessment, to be able to treat this child, to understand the dynamics. And obviously this child, it's the, her, their parents. They're not going to, the, the therapist is not going to be adopting this child. They're going to be having those parents their whole life. And so the point of therapy is to help them live and cope with their families. It's not to turn their families against them and have the therapist say that they know everything better. That obviously that's just, that's just terrible therapy. Well, and it's certainly, I've seen it firsthand. It certainly does seem like that's what is happening more frequently these days. And it possibly comes on the heels of the believe all victims narrative, where essentially now it's wrong to question or try to get the client to see alternative perspectives of what actually could have happened. And instead, you're only doing your job if you just immediately buy into their version of their narrative, which I find to be not only 
incredibly harmful to that person. But long-term, when you augment that into the collective, that is incredibly harmful to society as a whole. Then you end up with a a society that's completely unhealed, everybody fractured, everyone believing their own false narrative, which is very scary. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about children. I mean, even even if a children's not flat out lying, I mean, they're not going to know the whole picture. You need to you need Mm. to hear different points of view. I mean, isn't what's that cliche? There's there's how many sides to the story, right? There's one Mm -hmm. person's side, the other side of the story, and then. A whole other side. I don't know how does it go, but the whole point is, as a therapist, I, I see a therapist as someone who is kind of like a detective, and they're looking at all the pieces of the story, and then they're trying to put it all together. And some of it's from what they see in the room, but a lot of it is from. You're supposed to do a psychosocial assessment, which includes learning all about their entire life, all their influences in their life, and you're. As a social worker, I was trained to actually talk to all the different people that impact this child as much as possible. If any adults willing and available to talk to me, I will talk to them to get information if I, you know, if I obviously have permission from the family. So it's it's really about finding out more information from all different people and then putting all the pieces together, like putting together the clues like a detective to get the most thorough picture of what's happening so I could treat this person, not just jump to one conclusion after one session or listen to an eight-year-old and be, take that for face value, it's kind of wild that that's, that's best practice now, or that's, that's seen to be okay. I, I don't understand. Yeah. Well, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't make sense because it doesn't make sense, right? Yeah. I don't, I don't think there's a way to actually reconcile that with science or with reality. And I think that's another place that we've just gone where I think what we're describing as science is no longer science at all that's another word that got bastardized (laughs) yeah and it just it it has tentacles I believe out into every aspect of our life from medicine to therapy you name it literally it's everywhere so I think when we look at really I feel like now that I just had this moment where it all comes back to language really that seems to be the theme of this episode and it's perfect that we tied in the giver it all comes back to language and if we allow society and school to govern our speech and try to change definitions and try to take certain words or descriptors off the docket for us to no longer use or else face consequences. In some countries, you actually face jail time for using certain words now. That is a very slippery slope. I don't I don't see how we move forward as a society toward an end as anything other than the giver, right? That's kind of only where that goes. Yeah, it's really scary. I was just thinking about the DSM, which Mm -hmm. I don't see it as gospel, but it it is just, it's a guideline. And Mm -hmm. what's what's interesting is the latest DSM, I believe it came out in, I don't remember what year, 2013, 14, DSM-5. And it changed from uh, dissociative identity disorder. I'm sorry, that's another one. It's changed from uh, gender identity disorder to gender dysphoria. So they soften the language. Mm -hmm. Um, But even then, I I was recently just looking at the the criteria. And in the criteria, it says you need to have symptoms persist for at least six months. That's what it says now. I actually don't know what it said before, if it was longer. So I actually put that up on Twitter and said, look, you you need to at least have it for six months. Well, you talk to a lot of detransitioners now. most of them will say they got testosterone or cross-sex hormones 
or even a, a letter to get surgery within one session very quickly, definitely less than six months. So I was like, wow, it's even in the, in the book. <laughs> and then I had several social work students or therapy people in mental health programs tell me that they, they're saying that they're dismissing the DSM. The DSM doesn't count anymore. So it sort of counts when they want it to count and then it doesn't count when they don't want it to count. So it's really interesting. So that's not science. I think we can all say that that's no longer science. (laughs) And I think, so you brought up something that I definitely wanted to explore a little bit. So there's a term now that's being used, rapid onset gender dysphoria. So when we look at the term rapid onset gender dysphoria, do you feel like this is truly an emerging psychological label that we've somehow just missed all these years? Or is this actually something else entirely? Well, what I think it is, is a symptom of a social contagion, is what I think. I mean, how could I have been a, a counselor for all of these years? I've worked with people, the most severe populations since 1997 and never met any of these rapid onset gender dysphoria people working with mostly youth in in rich areas, poor areas, white areas, black areas, all different populations in New York and California, never met any of them. And suddenly in 2021, I met about 30% of the kids that had it. <laughs> that That's not normal. I know that the um, the argument is, oh, well, now we're just more accepting of it, right? That's, I think that's the, the rationale. Like our society is now open about it. So now they're all coming out of the, the closet and where they were all in hiding before. I, I call bullshit on that because I was working with people who were quite open about a lot of things that were quite vulnerable and stigmatizing and they were not talking about that. And I believe they would if it were the case. The other thing that's interesting is if this were really true, then why is it only happening to young people, especially teenage girls? Why is this not happening to adults? And I actually saw this in real time because I was working both with adults and kids simultaneously. And even here in this environment in the Bay Area where this is talked about all the time, there were zero transgender adults, but half the girls were non-binary or boys. So um, I believe this is an influence on young people. I believe it's a social contagion. It's coming at them from every angle. There's lots of incentives. I mean, now San Francisco is paying people. Yep. uh, They're paying their $1,200 a month if you qualify. If you're, if you have one of 97 genders, apparently. So um, I believe that this is about just as we said about changing language. I mean, what counts as as, uh, trans is really widened. Uh, It used to be transsexuals. Now you can just say you're something else and maybe wear a different hat and then you're a different gender. I mean, it's really, it's really profound. So. And I think that goes back to certainly something that you've just described like that would absolutely minimize the experience of somebody who has truly struggled with gender dysphoria from a young age and has always desired to not just dress like the other sex here and there, but genuinely become the other gender. So I think that that ties it up perfectly, which is we're essentially now saying that anything in that kind of would qualify you as trans could be quite literally dressing a certain way, wearing 
different makeup, changing your pronouns. It's not in any way, shape or form tied to the actual starting position or etiology of gender dysphoria. Exactly. And that's where, that's the shocking part about my profession, because I mean, I, so I, timeline for my, for me, I dropped out of work in the end of 2016. So basically 2017, I popped back in in the um, late 2018 to try to work. And I couldn't because I still had a lot of pain. So I, I was supervising at several schools in the Bay area. Even then in 2018, it wasn't that prevalent. Then, then I came back in 2021 and everything exploded. And what was, was cr crazy to me was not just the kids' behaviors, but it was, it was the therapist because it was so obvious that these kids, really obvious in your face, <laughs> that these kids were having other issues and they were avoiding them. And instead of the therapist addressing what were the obvious issues, and some of them were trauma or issues with their family or autism or just feeling like they don't fit in their, with their social peers, that stuff was not being addressed. All the therapists did was affirm their genders. And they even criticized parents and families that weren't going along with it full blast and saying like, well, the kid is not a good match for their parents, things like that. Oh, the kid's not a good match for their That's parents. what they said. There's this See, one girl. That's, that's exactly how you start trending toward that giver mentality of like, we'll, we'll pick parents for you. We'll not do the parent yeah. thing anymore. And, and this, and it was about a child who had very loving parents, but this is one of those where the, the leftists will look at it to that her parents were more religious and they were more traditional. And, um, she, she, I mean, she, she was an artist and she kind of had that punk, you know, way about her. Um, but I, I mean, I honestly, I felt a connection to her, but she also really was looking for someone to tell her, no, you're not a non-binary. Like she was, she was conflicted. And it's, and I, I was working with her on it, but I was only running the groups. I, I couldn't work with her one-on-one -on -one because of the position I was in, but the therapist would, they would instead affirm her. And I remember her, it created more anxiety for her. And I, I actually, in the groups would address it with her. And she even said once, um, my parents are transphobic, but I know they love me. <laughs> and she, she couldn't, she had this, she was starting to connect the dots, but the problem was that other adults were confusing her more and tearing her from her parents when she knew that they loved her and that they were good parents. She used that term. I remember her saying, they're good parents. She especially talked about her dad because her, she said, my mom would use my pronoun to my face, but then I would overhear her when I'm not in the room that she would use my dead name and my, and my she pronoun, right? And her dad wouldn't do it. And so, and she was very angry at her father, but then she would say, but I, but he's a really good dad otherwise. And he's always been a really good dad. And I know he loves me. So here she is knowing that her parents love her, but they weren't going along with it. And there was this conflict. And instead of the parents working with the family and she had sexual trauma. So it was really blatant that there was something else going on for her. And she was cutting. Um, she had come from the hospital from a suicide attempt. So she had all these clear mental health issues and she was very young. She was only 11, I think, 11 or 12. And so, she, so all of these issues and then watching the therapist just be like, well, the parents are a bad match for her in the session when we are in the group. And I was really new. So I didn't feel comfortable saying anything. And I, I was going to start speaking up and I did start speaking up, but unfortunately I wasn't there long enough to feel comfortable enough. I was only a per diem for like two days a week. Um, 
but I did, I was well received and they, they liked my feedback. I think if I were able to be there longer, I think I could have changed the minds without getting fired. But I, I mean, I think this agenda of taking me out, someone that thinks for myself, I couldn't stay, right? So you brought up a few things that I want to touch on because it definitely has a web that I think is important for people to understand. So number one, how does an 11-year-old start to understand the language architecture of pronouns and dead names, right? So 11, my daughter's 12. My daughter, you know, she's she's awake, like not woke. She's awake. So I get it. An 11, 12 year old mentally, they can have a pretty strong intellectual capacity. However, for all of those things to already be taking place in her life and for her to already be kind of weaponizing this system of language with her parents, where does, where does this come from? What are the different areas that kids can get exposed to this? Because it certainly isn't just school. One of my questions really is for parents that are listening how is this system of language literally just being put in like a puzzle piece and then kids just start talking? Like I keep getting a visual of like Teddy Ruxpin, you know, you put the tape in it's like, (laughs) I love you. It literally is like somebody's just inserting a chip and then all of a sudden it makes the kid talk in the system of language. Cause I've heard those exact same terms from my stepdaughter, dead name, right? So how does that happen? Where is this coming from? Well, I think the main source is the internet. I think that's where it's coming from the most. Uh, TikTok is really TikToksic. <laughs> TikToksic. Ooh, hashtag that one. <laughs> I just made that up just now. Um, but also from their peers, I think there's a huge peer influence, especially the girls. I think girls are very influenced by each other. Um, and then, yeah, it's, then it's reinforced by all the professionals, which is wild that instead of the adults being like okay kids cut it you're being you're being you're you're being dramatic you're and you're a teenager this is what teenagers do they test right they're going to use they're going to use their their power as they these are powerless when you're a teenager you're feeling powerless and you're trying to find your independence that's the nature of being a teenager and now they've given this has given teenagers this weapon to use against adults as soon as they have this weapon then everybody just bows to them and they can't do anything and they're powerless. And then we have doctors, therapists, teachers, counselors, all of these helping adults around them, threatening the parents, telling them their child will kill themselves if they don't do this, they don't affirm their child. And just all, so they all, I think there's so many forces. And then you just, it's just everywhere. I actually just, I just went to this first store yesterday to feel better because I was not in a great mood. And it's like a thrift store that donates money for pets. So I was like, oh, this is a lovely place to go. There was a huge pride flag in the front of the, of the damn store. I mean, just right there, that's, that's, that's influencing kids. It's, it's literally everywhere you look, Blue's Clues, uh, Scooby-Doo, uh, Velvet. I will say, as, as a mom, Blue's Clues, I know there have been a few different people. That show has always been creepy. I don't care how you slice it. Okay. I know one, one of them actually was a convicted pedophile. One of oh, them I didn't know that. I don't, yeah, no. So Blue's Clues, that's just creepy. Okay, good to know. I don't know. Um, yeah. But but it's it's literally everywhere. Like the whole Nickelodeon, they had all those drag queens dancing and the pride people. Now, they have cartoons now, like uh, with animals with like scars on their chest. Have you seen this? Yes, um, I've seen this. Yeah, like uh, I forgot what it was, a beaver. I think it was an actual beaver, which is, I might not be by an, an accident, interesting animal choice, right? Mm-hmm. Has, 
has a, a scars on their chest from cutting from yeah, no no the the surgery oh you know, surgery the, the, the mastectomy scars, scars. What? yes yes I'll, what? I'll show it to you after it's from oh. Nickelodeon if okay can, well now now your beaver comment makes sense yeah. at first I was like okay busy don't look stupid don't look stupid beaver 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 <laughs> yeah. but now I get it oh my god uh-huh like the the scars and that's on cartoons so it's it's everywhere and yeah there's so many videos of like little kids saying like I'm accepting and I you know I tell I ask anybody their pronouns you've seen the LASD D, yes, uh, Los Angeles that. school mm-hmm. district what they're putting on their Instagram the, those guys uh, all, and a lot of these things you can see they're really targeted towards children and then all the influencers and um have you read Abigail Shire's book Irreversible Damage no I have not um that really woke me up to this is before I mean now things have just gone insane so it's everywhere you look but before it was everywhere if you weren't paying attention it still was very much especially on YouTube I think Mm -hmm. is where the influencers would have these videos talking about how great their transition is and how much happier they are as a trans person so you think about it if you're a teenager that really feels lousy and is lonely and lost and can't get attracted, doesn't, can't find a boyfriend or girlfriend, or doesn't fit in with any social group. Maybe you're on the spectrum, maybe you're not. You're looking at these people who look cool and quirky and fun, and and you're like, I want to be like one of them. And then they they glorify it. They right, show and then it looks it like is. maybe that's the answer. Yeah. So it's just it looks that like, like pre-made puzzle piece, right? This piece will save you. And they say that. I mean, and, and then there's there's these slides of I, that I've seen where they'll say, if you don't like the sound of your voice, that means you're dysphoric. If you don't like dressing up in fancy clothes, that means you're dysphoric. So, so things that are kind of normal feelings for most of us, they're saying are makes maybe you're, you have dysphoria. So they're taking they're taking what are normal feelings and turning it into that. And then so you, so there's just all these influences coming from everywhere. So. Yeah. Here, I want to kind of frame up this question with a couple things. So statistically, true gender dysphoria is about 1% of the total population. Yeah, so, I don't even know. I don't even know at this point, but yeah, that's what they say. Well, I mean, I, you know, I had somebody on the show um, that was sharing some of the data and how things have grown in literally triple digit percentages over yeah. the last few years, right? So, but historically speaking, gender dysphoria is about 1% of the total pop. So is it? I thought it was even less, but anyway. So one one percent is the pretty consistent standard, okay. like agreed upon standard. I'm, you know, is it less than that? Probably, but that's it seems to be consensus, right? Who's they? I don't know, but that seems to be the consensus. Right. <laughs> so this seems like a pretty big global push at every single aspect of society for young ages for a one percent of the population like I don't someone can someone make that make sense I don't think that that makes any sense why would we do all of this at every level of government science medicine education for one percent of the population especially if one percent of the population many of the members of that particular group are saying that this doesn't make sense yes and a lot of them, even though they have these, feel, uh, what, what from my understanding is a lot of them, they'll still have the feelings, but they'll still not go through the whole transition. Like they'll end up working through it somehow or, you know, figuring out other ways because this, we're not, we haven't talked about this, but 
I and I didn't even know about this until I really got into the conversation, just how dangerous all these medical interventions are, which oh, are incredible as being harmless or reversible or even you know helpful. So um, even just the binding, which is the elastic band um, women, girls wear to flatten their breasts, that is, and just that is dangerous and people don't realize. I mean, people have trouble breathing, people end up with fracturing ribs from that. I mean, there's some really dangerous things. That's even before we're talking about the hormone or the puberty blockers, which are insanely dangerous, which we know they use to chemi chemically castrate they used to use to chemically castrate sex offenders. And, and they're not actually, ir they're not reversible. They're not they're, reversible. They, they are irreversible. They're irreversible. They're tiny, yeah. <laughs> you can't ever go back. You, I've, there are plenty of detransitioners out there where you can't, you can't change your voice. There are certain things that won't ever go back to normal. Yeah. And that, that's usually the hormones. And yeah. And as someone, I think that's the other reason why it actually, this affects me or I guess touches me so personally is because I'm someone that has chronic pain and I'm doing a lot better now. So I lived, I was pretty bedridden and couldn't do normal things for three years in a row. And I was someone who was very active before that and active both physically where I was athletic and then just active in as a social worker and just in life, right? And then my whole life just basically went dark because I couldn't do things. I mean, I was lucky if I could go out for a walk. I, I mean, I spent every day just like practicing gratitude and doing deep breaths and doing like doing exercises that just got me through the moment, you know, it was really intense. So to think about, we're putting children on these drugs that are going to induce chronic disability for many of them, bone problems, nerve damages, uh, vision problems that the FDA- and Incredibly is high risk of cancer. Yeah, incredibly high risk of cancer, not being able to achieve sexual pleasure and connect with others. I think that's another- agenda yeah no one no one ever talks about that one yeah and, I mean, and all the infection rates that come with some of the surgeries right I oh, mean, yeah th those alone could be life-ending exactly um I talked to Scott Nugent um Scott Nugent is the transgender who was in what is a woman mm -hmm. and Scott Nugent really struggles with regularly struggles with infections from the surgeries he has he, he identifies as he would just say he just can't go back because his, what he's done is irreversible, but he, he would rather have not done it. He has regret. So the pronoun thing gets confusing, but, um, but regardless, it's, it's just, it, uh, he's, he's really passionate because he's, he's firsthand really struggled and he doesn't want this to happen to children, to healthy children. So yeah, it's, it feels really nefarious. And I, I just, <laughs> how are therapists condoning this? I mean, they don't know is, I think, the main reason they're, they're naive about it. I think so. one of the other things that doesn't get talked about enough, and I think this maybe goes back to that idea of the importance of waiting and not just affirming on the first appointment or even affirming on the third appointment. Many people that experience true gender dysphoria, if they're able to navigate all the way through their, their uptick in hormones as they're hitting puberty and get to the other side of that, typically things balance out. So in reality, the cure for gender dysphoria in some cases, certainly not all is actually going through puberty. For sure. So, we're and, talking we're just, about and we're just people. like, and we're just cutting that off now at like 11, 12, before they ever have a chance to let their bodies possibly balance out and self-correct. Yeah. I did this tweet. I said, 
uh, newsflash society, we can't save children from their own bodies. Mm, That's really well put. Because yes, it's painful to go through puberty. It's painful to go through those changes. It's very uncomfortable. And we're, we've become a society where we're trying to protect kids from pain at such a level that now we're trying to protect them from their own bodies and the pain they go through because they're uncomfortable with their developing breasts or their developing bodies. I mean, we've really come, gone too far. I completely agree. We touched on a couple of things that I mentioned in that video and open letter to kids in 2022, which a lot of therapists jumped in there and tried to get very upset with me, which a lot of it was funny because when I went to a click on all of their profiles, some of the things that they openly support was not surprising. I literally had people messaging me that had like hail Satan in their profile. I'm like, I don't think this is doing what you think it's doing. It's kind of just, it's kind of just backing up my point. But I think on this topic, the idea that a lot of the kids that are getting swept up into this agenda actually have underlying mental health conditions. Somehow that was not received well by therapists. They're like, that's just plain wrong. Mm-hmm. Is it? Is it wrong yeah. that these kids actually have other issues that are allowing them to be corrupted by this agenda or allowing them to be swept up in it? No, I think they're literally preying on the vulnerable. I think this is about preying on, preying on people who have other issues whatever they may be. And each, if you look at people who are transgender or detransitioners or whatever, each one, there is always something. Um, And it's different for each person, whether it be maybe they're on the spectrum or maybe they had a huge loss in their life or, you know, some grief, or usually a lot of it is trauma um, or, you know, some really um, damaging, um, reef in their like an early childhood or something like that, then that stuff needs to be addressed first and it's not being addressed. I mean, I, I also saw a doctor talk about, it was a doctor, like an intern that was going, doing their rounds and they, they, um, it was anecdotal, but they went through the, the youth ward and they talked about every transgender person and they would, they met several, I don't know what the number is, but it was a lot, a large number. And they said, every single one had a a comorbidity mental health issue. And and that's why I think they're able to weaponize this suicide lie so easily. Absolutely. Is is because they're kind of bending the truth here. So it's true that people who tend to identify as transgender often do have suicidal ideation or maybe have even made an attempt. And that's usually because they do have other mental health issues. And so you're not, instead of addressing the thing that might induce the suicidal thoughts, then it becomes hyper-focused on the gender. So I've talked to, I remember meeting this one parent at this rally whose daughter was transgender and she was supporting her daughter as transgender. And she thought I was killing her daughter by saying affirmative care doesn't save lives. And she literally, she said to me, you're, you're, you're the reason my daughter's life is at risk. And um, I didn't talk to her daughter. I wasn't her daughter's therapist, but I could visually see the daughter wasn't mentally well. She just, she didn't look well. She was wearing this mask and wouldn't make eye contact. Her eyes were sunken in and she just didn't look well. But I don't, I don't obviously know this case, but the point is, is that if, if she believes that her daughter will kill herself, 
my, I mean, I'm just going to jump to some conclusion that maybe her daughter had spoken about suicide because maybe she's been learned, been taught to say it because a mm -hmm. lot of them now are taught to say that, or she really does feel it because it's oftentimes it's a mixture of both. So if that's the case, why aren't we addressing, we're not addressing the main issues here. And that, yeah, so it was, it was hard for me to, to talk to this woman. I wanted, I, I really, I really wanted to be able to reach her because I could see she really cared about her daughter. This wasn't about her spewing hate at me. And I clearly was there out of concern for her family and her, because I just felt like they've been lied to and they, they believed it. But it's because probably her daughter has mental health issues and her daughter's been taught to say she has mental health issues. So there's both. But oh, I think every single person, yes, has mental health issues. And, and that's, that's how they're able to weaponize this so easily. So this kind of brings up another point, which even something like cutting, for example, cutting has grown in unbelievable proportions over the last, let's say, 10, 15 years. Once an idea is introduced to a child's brain, the brain is inherently curious and will play around with that idea in a variety of scenarios to seek to understand it. So I really feel what we're looking at here is also that these ideas, even something like suicide as a way out or suicide as something that's kind of looked at in a way that's glorified or cool, that is now starting to spread like wildfire. So I feel like we have all of these terms and an action that comes with the term, somehow we're allowing it to prime all of the consciousness of all of the kids at the school age. And I think this is probably why a lot of parents choose to keep their kids out of school, right? Because how do you, how do you prevent something like that? Uh, do you feel like this is what happens in terms of like even something like taking gender dysphoria off the table? Do you feel like even something like suicide, once that idea is implanted, it can basically take root like an intrusive thought and change a kid's whole life? Oh, for sure. You know, it's interesting. I don't think I told you this about my background, but I worked at Gunn High School in Palo Alto in 2015. And that was the year there was a suicide cluster, which made national attention. And uh, I never met any of the people that died. So I just want to put that out there. But I was there in that environment where basically the adults and the kids were all in panic mode about suicide and it was on the tip of everyone's tongue uh, for different reasons one was grief and fear and then the other was it was also a way to, to get your needs met it was also an idea that was planted into kids as a way out for of problems um, it was glorified in a lot of ways it was a way to get out of school out of responsibility to say that you were feeling this way. And sometimes it was a full on attention seeking. Sometimes it was, they really did feel that way. But if that wasn't, I think if it wasn't around them so much, it might not have, the idea wouldn't have been so uh, implanted. So yeah. this, I feel like this kind of goes back to this idea that really you only know something until you know something else. And I always use in my work, the example of if you were raised off grid with a family and you were told that this is white, you would believe with every cell of your being that this is actually a white phone. And if you go out into the world, you would argue till you're blue in the face that this is a white phone. You would pass a polygraph saying that this is a white phone. So I think what we have happened in our world right now is that 
they're whatever the they is and we can kind of put a pin in that for now whatever mm -hmm. the they is there are these pieces of language or systems of language or ideas that they are very clear now will start to move through society like a virus if we allow them to somehow be inserted or implanted in our in our society it feels like all of these words and systems of language were inserted with a very intentional purpose to do exactly what we've done, right? Where now kids are like, well, that, no, this is a white phone. And if you say that this is a black phone, you're transphobic. If you yeah. say that this is black, you could go to jail, right? So that's basically what's happening is we're now kind of altering reality to fit whatever this agenda is. So I think the big drum roll question is, what's the end goal? Like, what do all of these different things like normalizing mental illness, you know, allowing suicide and cutting to be primed throughout society and put up on a pedestal, gender dysphoria, you know, sexualizing kids. What is the end goal? Where does this all come together? Oh, well, I mean, I get really upset when I think about this, or I guess I, maybe I start turning into conspiracy theorists, but I mean, I really feel like they're trying to break down our spirits from every angle. That's how I see it. And they're really, they're really going after the kids, breaking down their, the children's spirits and their resiliency and their strength and their ability to think for themselves, their ability to connect with each other. I, I, I see they're, they're just, they're, their whole development, everything we know about child development, the structure they need, that's all being under attack. So I, I think this is about just breaking down society. And I think whoever they is, <laughs> And, you know, I have some nefarious actors in my head, but I don't know, whoever they is, the people who are looking to have the power, I think they're the ones behind this to break us down. I think it's, it's up to us to not fall into these traps and not let our kids fall into these traps because then they, the elites, you know, people who are running the show, people who are whoever it is that's creating the training for therapists, whoever it is that's r running the, the, the trainings for school counselors and school teachers to teach kids not to think for themselves, who are running the, the social emotional learning programs at schools, all, all of these kinds of things, whoever's at the top, top down, whoever these are, people are, they are there, I think they're in it for power. They're in it for money and power. So I think that's the goal. Yeah, I mean, it can get really dark. Like, that thing. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it gets really dark, <laughs> really quick. Um, but at the so I think maybe where I would go with this, if you look at all the pieces individually, they all have a similar sort of architecture to them. And if I look at it from let's just say just a business mind, I think the reason they're targeting kids is because we're not a good investment. We're gonna, yeah. we're gonna die, right? Like whatever their plan is, we're potentially gonna die or we'll be harder to coerce because they're gonna have to work against all of our existing programming. We're not as impressionable either. We know, we're not as impressionable. Yeah. So I feel like they're really trying to triple down on really marketing to the demographic that arguably and like, wait for this, live for live forever in their eyes because they are children are likely the ones that from their perspective will merge with AI and move into this transhumanist world where maybe right, some of us yeah, maybe some yeah. of us are not the ones that will make it. So and this could be a whole separate episode and likely will need to be because we've already gotten two hours. But 
Have we gone that long? Wow. I mean, we could talk forever and certainly we should do a whole other episode on, I would say like kind of the mental health implications of virtual reality and video games as a whole. I don't know that that many people are talking about that from a mental health perspective. That's how a lot of the autistic kids are getting pulled in through the video games. Yeah. Absolutely. And they're, they're not in touch with their bodies. I mean, they, they can float away from their bodies and then it's easier for them to say, I'm in a different body or I was born in a different body or something like that. Yeah. Which to me, the autism thing brings in a whole other thing that I was shown in a vision years ago that I know a lot of my audience on my secret podcast during COVID, you guys heard all about this. So, you know, the autism, the crossover with autism and the kids that are getting swept up in the gender the gender dysphoric agenda or the non-binary agenda, there's a strong correlation there. And we also know that where we're trending by 2030, one in three boys will have autism, which is, I mean, if anyone wants to really just kind of chew on that statistic, that is, I mean, what, and this isn't to denigrate or speak downly on, down on people with autism, but just societally, what would our world look like if one in three men were autistic? Like I work with a lot of clients who have spouses on the autism spectrum. That's challenging. Mm-hmm. Their, their understanding of our socio-emotional experience in many cases is very different than the majority, right? So to me, that in and of itself is suspect that we're just letting that data point go up like this. And it just so happens that that fits in perfectly with this gender piece that fits in perfectly with the virtual reality piece, which fits in perfectly with merging with AI. Because from all of the clients I've worked with on the spectrum, in many cases, their computing power of their brain is very much intact. What is either missing or not, it's neurodivergent, right? It's not as it is in the majority of the population, is their ability to emotionally process and experience nuance or context. That's gone. So in essence, they are just their computing power, which to me merges perfectly with the transhumanist agenda, right? Then we've got just pure pure consciousness, if you will. Although I believe that consciousness from the God-given spirit perspective is much more than just the computing power. But I think potentially the elites or the people that are pushing this agenda, they just care about that toward, that kind of like mainframe of your brain per se. Yeah, I didn't know that, that the statistic was going up so much. Yeah. So let's see, you know, as I said it, it might even be one and two, but let me see. I've got it right here. Yeah. The the thing, the other thing about autism. Sorry. I'm sorry. It's one and two by 2030, one in every two boys will have autism. A lot of autistic people there, you know, they have sensory issues and they don't like to be touched or they, they don't like to, they don't like clothes touching them. So I think that's a lot how they do that. If you don't like to get dressed up thing. So that's a lot of people on the spectrum of maybe have sensory issues. So they don't like to be touched so they don't and oftentimes they they struggle dating or, or finding a, a mate or maybe they they're not as interested right some people don't have as well much and interest. i think this goes back to they don't enjoy the feeling of a physical body yeah what a perfect right. transition to oh great well we'll just upload your consciousness onto the cloud and then you don't really have to have a body you can just be free right in essence it's almost like a variation of depersonalization, less about like, I don't exist, but more that they don't like the physicality of existing, right? Yeah, yeah, interesting. All of those things certainly freak me out. I feel like I've done enough digging and rabbit holing on these issues to see exactly what actually ties all these things together, which 
we will leave for another episode. We don't need to go all the way there for right now, but certainly to kind of tie this all up with a bow, knowing that we're kind of two weeks on the heels of this whole Balenciaga scandal, which I told you before, I mean, I've been talking about this for many, many years. So when all of a sudden people awoke to this and are horrified, where have you been while the rest of us have been trying to show this to you and you have buried your head in the sand and told us all that we're crazy? Um, I think, you know, we've got these two things tracking parallel. We are talking about how the transgender agenda is also being co-opted by grooming, right? Like there's, this isn't to say that being transgender means that you are a groomer or that you are a sexually deviant person. We're saying that this agenda has had people jump on the bandwagon and kind of take over the agenda intentionally grooming kids, right? I don't think that some are intentional. I think, and some aren't, I think are naive. I think they're being, um, so do you think though, I think what I'm saying though, is do you think the actual, so let's say the drag Queens that are stripping in front of kids and the people that are hiring these people to do these shows that are sitting there watching that, do you think that that is naive or do you think that Um, that's intentional? I think, yeah. I mean, especially the really explicit ones, those are not naive. Yeah. I was actually, in, I was in San Francisco and I got to see our lovely Senator Scott Wiener with some drag queens at Halloween in front of children. And that made me gag. And I definitely think he knows what he's doing. I mean, even here in my little sleepy town of Sandpoint in North Idaho, there was a pride festival in our town. And what's ironic. So that same day I was in the building right next to it, teaching a parent workshop and throughout like from the window you could see and watch what was happening at the pride festival and you know I had seen all this stuff on Instagram accounts and I was like wow that sounds wild like they can't all be like that I have a ton of gay friends I have no issue with people's sexual orientation I have friends that are transgender I have family members that are transgender none of what we're talking about has anything to do with me disliking morally who these people are So even in this moment, when I saw these things, I'm like, well, they can't all be that bad. Well, guess what? I live in a tiny little town in the middle of nowhere that is incredibly conservative. Guess what I saw at our pride festival? Our pride festival, which is right outside the window. And we literally all kept looking. We're like, no, no, what? All all geared toward kids, balloons, face painting. It was all intentionally geared to get people to bring their kids we have a Waldorf school in town here and I was always very pro Waldorf for a long time, but I will say this school has specifically rallied, they intentionally rallied parents and kids to come to this pride festival. There were strippers, there were stripper poles, they were passing out candy, painting faces. There were transgender people and men and women virtually naked and kids were giving dollar bills and I'm sitting there watching like this is happening if this is happening in my tiny little town this is happening everywhere I didn't I didn't believe it until I saw it in my tiny town and now I'm convinced this is and listen I lived in WeHo I used to you know frequent hamburger Mary's in West Hollywood I'm not the girl that's anti-drag queens what I'm anti is hyper hyper sexualized drag queen shows with kids there's just no need for it there's you can't reconcile a a logical reason to do that you're sexually priming kids to think sexually and that is one of the most harmful things you can possibly do for their brain because they won't ever be able to get that out of their head 
It's the sexual piece. And it's also just the confusing them with reality thing, kind of like yes. what you're talking about with language, but also they know they're looking at a man and people are telling them it's a woman and it's confusing them. And that, I think that also messes with their development that they have and to it's got a mess. It's got to mess with some of those initial sparks of sexuality because a lot of those kids have never like sexual arousal is not a thing for them, yeah. but it's actually intended in certain ways to get you to start that process of sexual arousal. I have clients all the time who were primed into a very rough sexual lifestyle just by being exposed to porn accidentally at an early age. So imagine what we're doing to kids who are doing this on purpose. And, and that's a whole other topic, the porn access. Yeah. Oh God. So we'll put that, that that's episode three. We'll talk about <laughs> porn too. So I think beyond a shadow of a doubt, we can see that there are these aspects of at very minimum, the different issues that we're watching all kind of crash into each other at this point of culmination all seem to be very convenient. I'll say architectures to hold the transhumanist agenda. So I'm not saying definitively, I know that that's the answer, but I'm highly suspect. They, you know, I've watched too many James Bond movies, too many detective movies to say that these pieces genuinely seem like they're all built to hold where the transhumanist agenda is going. And it does seem like the pedophilia and grooming piece fits firmly into that, right? A lot of what we see, even when, you know, Meta started to write Facebook, change their name to Meta and all this kind of push into virtual reality, there, what happens in that virtual reality space regarding sexually explicit material and access points for kids to actually act these things out in kind of more of a three-dimensional seeming experience, that alone would change society for the worst. Do you agree? Are you concerned? Oh my about God. That? Honestly, like it's hard for me to go there because when I do, I get, I am getting, <laughs> I'm getting anxious because I completely agree with you. Yes. It's so, I mean, really some of the Have things... you seen the commercials for Meta? Oh it's so yeah. Creepy. So creepy. And then, um, I think we talked about this offline, but the, the movie I was in disconnected uh, it addresses the transhumanist agenda in it. It's talking about transgender, but it goes into some of the transhumanists. And in it, he, um, the filmmaker, his name is Don Johnson. He highlights, I wish I knew the name of this woman, but a woman who built a robot for her deceased partner and made a robot. And it's so creepy. And it shows, it's, it's a replica of this woman who's deceased talking like supposedly like the woman who was alive and talking to her so that this woman could still have her partner who's who's dead but a robot and it's it's the creepiest thing it's like is that what they want to do they want to like upload our something our personalities i don't think it's really our personalities but what they believe is our personalities into a robot and that's just the same as a human being it is it is so dystopian and so creepy yeah i mean it's absolutely dystopian and creepy i have I feel like this is where a lot of the visions that I've gotten in my spiritual journey, all of these kind of hit that exact point. So maybe we'll, we'll talk about those in the future too, because that the idea, right. And this kind of goes back to what we were talking about with the kind of autism brain I'll say right now. So this idea that we can simply upload our consciousness onto the cloud is of course false because you can tell when someone's, I mean, even just like, let's back it up for a second. 
when somebody is not fully present in their body, right? Like there's something that spiritually feels off in them. Maybe their, their face has a bit of a pallor. Their eyes look kind of dark. You can tell when there's a disconnect with their soul or spirit, right? So we know that whether we can prove that scientifically or not, we can't just upload our consciousness onto the cloud because we'll be missing that soul spirit element of us that can't actually be separated. I believe our personality is a mixture of that. It's like that kind of alchemical blend of those things. So you can't actually just separate one. And if anyone watches Black Mirror, there was an episode that kind of goes into what you were just talking about where um, this ha- the girl does this because her husband died and she actually has a version of him. And I think it starts off with a phone call where she can talk to him. And then eventually they have a version where he can come like it's, he's like looks physical, but she ends up getting so freaked out by him because she knows it's not him. He's saying all the things that he would say he's reacting the way he would react, but it's not him because that magical essence, that spirit is missing. And eventually she freaks out and is trying to get him out of the house because she feels like he's stalking her, right? Because that that ability to be human is missing. So from a Christian perspective, I think this is exactly right. If you're looking at this from the Satan agenda piece, this is how Satan keeps his time running for a lot of people to voluntarily move their soul or spirit onto the cloud. But that's a whole separate issue. I think when we're talking about, you know, all of these terrible things we've talked about, right? I feel like we've definitely, we've highlighted beyond a shadow of a doubt, we are in a danger zone societally. I do also try to make sure that every episode we do focus on a bit of solutions oriented pieces. So to wrap this all up, what are a few things that you would encourage parents to do knowing that really this is a full-scale war on kids so all the rest of us I think at this point just should wake up and know better and we should put our focus on the kids so what are a few pieces of advice would you give to adults with kids about how to intercede how to protect your kids and how to walk out these next couple of years which I really think will kind of make or break where we're going with this well I think first of all probably the people that are listening to us talk are the ones that are already very awake and very present with their children. So I think what I'm about to say is probably things that your audience already does. But I mean, one of the biggest things that kids are looking for is attention and for you to be present with them. I mean, it's very basic. I mean, and it's not because someone's a bad parent or they're neglectful. I mean, life happens and parents have to work. They're making a living. I mean, here in Palo Alto, I remember when I was working with those kids, a lot of them were just saying how they resented. I remember this one girl, um, she was just resented her parents working all the time. They had two Teslas, they had a nice house, they had a lot of nice things. She said she could do without any of it because she just wanted her parents around. Mm. Uh, You know, I mean, it's kind of basic. And and of course, in, in this day and age, I think the spirits of our kids are under attack through the internet. And it's not easy, but to limit the internet as much as possible. And if you can, especially if you have younger kids to really limit the internet so that they are, don't feel the need to get on those phones. Um, it's not gonna be easy though, because they're, especially if we're talking about teenagers, they're gonna, have, they're gonna find a way through their friends or something else. There, there are some programs out there like um, where you can give a kid like a dumb phone or there's some apps you can use. I don't know them offhand. One's called Safeguard. There's there's some some programs products that will help with that. 
um, but to be mindful of your of your child and what they're doing online. I, I think a lot of the detransitioners that are coming out now, every single one of them will say it was the internet that really turned them and it was because their parents weren't around or, or even if they were around, they were in the house in a different room while they were sitting in their in their room on the internet, either talking to live predators or just looking at, at content that was influencing them. So the, the internet is probably the biggest culprit. I'd also just say in general to not trust experts, to, to believe in yourself. I love that one. Don't trust experts. <laughs> you heard it here first, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, just believe in yourself. I'm not saying that to, to not trust anyone ever, but to not blindly trust experts. I'll just put it that way. And to, to question things and to believe in yourself. And if something in your gut doesn't feel right, that to find other opinions and to listen to yourself. Because there's a lot of parents that, um, very famous Chloe Cole, her parents were coerced to allow her to get the double mastectomy because all of the counselors and all of the doctors were telling her parents that she would kill herself if she, they didn't allow her to get it. And they believed it. And this was back in, I don't know what year, 2018, 2019, before people were talking about it as much. This information is a little more accessible where more parents are getting that. So spreading the word, I'm hopefully spreading the word to others, but I'm going to guess that a lot of the parents listening to this are already aware of that. But to just always, I mean, unfortunately, women, we're wired to not always trust ourselves and to second guess ourselves, especially when we're talking to a doctor or a counselor that seems to know what they're talking about or uses their authority, threatens their authority on them. But um, there are good people out there and just to, to keep, to, don't give up on finding good people and finding help if you need it. Um, yeah, it's, um, finding like-minded people, uh, surrounding yourself with like-minded people, I think will really help to watch who your kids hanging out with. I mean, it's, I, I don't envy parents these days. <laughs> it's, it's not easy. There's so many influences everywhere. Um, try not to be shy to talk to your parents, to your kids. And just talking about anything, like, you know, trying to connect with them so that you can get an idea of what's, what's going on. Um, you know, knowing what their peer group is, who, they hang, who they're hanging out with, who their coach is, if their coach is affirmative or if their coach is, you know, uh, you know, and reinforcing of these toxic ideas. That's a few things. So I think you brought up a couple of things that are definitely true, right? A lot of our viewers or listeners are certainly awake to varying degrees. I will say though that this agenda is so sneaky that even somebody that is awake and I have plenty of clients that have this experience, that doesn't mean that their kids aren't gonna get swept into oh, it, yeah. right? I, I've, I've seen, seen that. that. I've seen it happen quite a few times. So I think from where I sit today, what I would do if I had little kids, which of course I do have little kids. So this is actually what I'm doing. I think one of the most important things to do, and I think it's one of the keystones of break method in general is above all else, age appropriate truth always. So yeah. kids need to know that this is happening and know how to spot it, know how to see it and know simultaneously how to have empathy for people that are struggling in this, right? I think sometimes people do this weird thing where in educating people about it, they weaponize that against other people. So now everyone becomes the bad guy. I would like to teach my kids the truth so that they can have empathy for people that are going through this and actually be the light to help these people out of it. So to think that we have to somehow shield our kids and that that alone will work, I think is missing the mark. We've yeah. got to 
you know, to a degree, like, of course, do what I want my child on TikTok. Absolutely not. Although, and I think I've talked about this on a previous show. Now Pinterest is becoming TikTok. So everybody oh, wake up. TikTok has, TikTok has penetrated Pinterest. Now people are posting TikToks as idea pins. So now Pinterest is TikTok. So just FYI, I ran into that one with my daughter. I was like, she's so creative. We still allow Pinterest. It's over. So of course, there's some amount of shielding that I think is important. It's impossible though. It's everywhere. It is. So then they need to know how to stand in the gap like we are and understand it for what it is so that they're not swept up by it. Because you you really only get swept up by it if you get caught off guard or you don't understand what's happening to you. But you can actually equip your kids to be the kid that looks at the teacher and be like, no. Pronouns are dumb. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Why are you doing that? So yeah, I, I think I that's really things. the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wrote a few things like to arm kids and age appropriately on how to kind of stand back against some of these influences. Is that in a place pronouns. that our audience can get to it? Because I feel like that's the kind of stuff that we need to be equipping our moms with because I think moms and dads that listen to the show, they're aware, but I think sometimes the practical steps elude them. It kind of is just this like hide them away and don't let them go to school or keep their phone away, but they're still going to get exposed to it. And then they won't necessarily know how to deal with the exposure. Right. So it's not, you know, we had an accidental porn exposure with my son when he went on the one sleepover he's ever been on ever when he was in like second grade. Um, and he came back and the next day was acting super weird. And I just remember watching him and I was like, something happened. <laughs> and then I finally asked him and he like broke down. He's like, oh my God, mom. So, Aww. you know, having that convert, like it, while that I'm sure was a not ideal experience that a lot of parents wouldn't want to have, what that opportunity gave us now moving forward into the future has paid off a million fold because now my son understands what that is. He understands why it's harmful to him, why it's harmful to his friends. And he's now equipped to actually be a good example and not just get swept up by the crowd. Right now he's been empowered as a leader that's able to articulate why that's a no for him. But But it sounds like you, sorry, what does it say? It sounds like what you've done also is you're teaching your children critical thinking skills. Yeah. And I think that's what's being lost. And that's what's um, being taken away, especially in the public schools and in these environments and just in Hollywood and all these these messages repeated messages so helping kids helping kids have critical thinking helping them have the confidence to be able to stand up to their peers to say if they if they feel uncomfortable like to to kind of ask them what are their when they feel you know to teach them when they're feeling uncomfortable it's okay to say no or to not go along those those sorts of messages and I got those messages as a kid not just from my parents but since from society you know I grew up in the 80s and and I yeah. got those messages and my per- personal space bubble. Message. I remember being taught the yeah. personal space bubble and that it was okay to tell people like you need to back up. You're in my personal space bubble. Yeah. If you're uncomfortable, it's okay to say no, like those sorts of things. And it's now it's like you, everybody has to be nice and be kind, but it, it being nice and being kind sometimes is, is coming at a cost, right? If you're really uncomfortable with it, then that's not nice anymore. You're not being nice to anybody. You're actually lying in a way. So you know, what is, what's, what's nice and what's not nice. It's, it's nuanced and it's hard for kids to understand. So teaching kids that, um, yeah, I wrote, so I wrote a parent's guide to mental health and, and in there has tips for parents. A lot of it is about empowering the parents and some of it's about empowering the kids. Cause I think also if the parents are more empowered to speak up and set an example, that really helps the kids. So 
I mean, I saw this during the COVID era. There were a lot of parents I was frustrated with, even my friends who were against the mask mandates, but they didn't say a word about it, even though their young children were being masked up and they hated it, but they didn't even say anything. And I, I really, honestly, it was hard for me to watch. And I just, I just felt like, well, if you as an adult can't say anything, how are you going to expect your child to speak up? So I think there's a lot of modeling there to model speaking up on things that are uncomfortable. I'm not talking about, you know, fighting against everything that's going to get you canceled, but I'm, I'm just saying in general, like just having appropriate boundaries and um, not, not doing things that make you really uncomfortable. And I think kids are being pushed too hard to do things that are uncomfortable. Yeah, just put, push to comply no matter what and not ask questions to an authority. Yeah. So yeah, I really like that, teaching them critical thinking skills. Well, so I wrote my parents' guide to mental health. That is uh, the truthfultherapist.org. And it's $5 a month. And I have a lot of online courses that it really does equip parents on a lot of these ideas. And I specifically wrote, uh, as there's, a, there's a whole section on gender dysphoria. I wrote what to say to a therapist if they uh, tell you that your daughter will kill themselves if you don't affirm them, some, you know, some rebuttals specifically that have, have the language that will, I think, cause some therapists to be tongue-tied um, about, you know, using their language back at them. And oh, then, awesome. yeah, like, I think that only a therapist could write, you know, like, well, I thought, you know, we're not supposed to use therapy as a blackmail and now we're using it. And, um, and then I wrote a thing about, to teach kids about how to, how to say no to pronouns that uh, now you're, you're making, you know, my friends confused and I, I, I don't feel, you know, we're, now we're not able to be friends anymore. It's hard because I don't know what they're going to do and that they're, you know, they're changing all the time. Um, you know, just, you know, basic different ways to say no. So uh, I wrote all that and truthfultherapist.org. Awesome. And we'll definitely link it also in the show notes. But I just think the stronger kids are mentally, the more resilient they are in general, the less susceptible they will be, they are. But I mean, we can't control. I mean, the best parents, whatever they, kids, kids have vulnerabilities, and and the, and the people that are running this, they know that, and they're they're really after these kids, and they're after the vulnerable. So it's it's not easy. I wouldn't blame parent that blame parents for if this happened to their children at all. Well, I'm glad that you're taking steps to equip parents with either a way out or a practical solution to try to combat it if it is already happening to them. So and then obviously, thank you for doing that. Yeah. And to find professionals that aren't going to enable this, right. And to find professionals that will do similar to what you're saying, like to challenge people and to not just go along with things and, you know, to actually do therapeutic work. Therapy is not about being nice and affirming. And I'm not just talking about gender. It's just, it's not just about affirming. Yeah. It's a therapy. Affirmation therapy is not therapy. We can get an affirmation from our pets. My dog gives me affirmative therapy, but if I need therapy, I'm not, I'm not going to a human being. So I feel like that's, that's definitely the way to end the show. <laughs> you can go to your dog for affirmative therapy. You don't need to go to a therapist for that. So we end every show here with a series of rapid fire questions. So I'm going to mix some of these up for you since I know you actually had access to some of them too long to make you short circuit. So (laughs) the first one, which I do certainly want to keep is if you didn't become a clinical social worker, what would you become instead? So I've really, I've other passion I have is photography. 
I think I would have been a photographer, a professional photographer, which I've actually done. I've always just done it on the side, but I'm still wrestling with, maybe I will become more of a, a photographer. Maybe I'll be more of a photojournalist. That, that's something I toyed with when I was back in college, being a photojournalist. I've done photography for families. I really enjoy photography. I actually took a lot of photos at uh, the recent rally, Do No Harm rally of people that are fighting these issues we're talking about today. So um, that's my other passion. That's amazing. What band do you most align with your high school years? Oh gosh. I, I wasn't that cool in high school to like be into bands. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did listen to Billy Joel. I went to his concert in high school. Um, in, in, in college, I was really into Dave Matthews. I really like Dave Matthews band. Um, there, there was this other band called Guster that I really liked. Um, so I like the nineties music. I, I, yeah, the eighties music, it's funny. I, I like it now that I'm old, but at the time I found it annoying. Well, you and I would, we would not have been friends. Oh no. <laughs> That's okay. We can be friends now. <laughs> I was, I was the eighties music synth pop girl. And like, even in third grade where I was like way ahead of my time listening to music that other people were like, what is this? They're still listening to Raffi kids music. I'm like, Psh, you guys, you guys don't know. I mean, I like thriller. I, you know, I really like the video. <laughs> I was obsessed with the video that remember that MTV. Making oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. I was obsessed with that. Cause I, I like film. I like behind, I like special effects, those sorts of things. So I, I was I mean, really into that, but I'd always scream too. My mom said that I would want to listen to or like watch it all the time, but I'd also scream and cry when all the zombies would come out. Well, I, the scariest part for me was when, when he was changing into the werewolf. Oh yeah. That, yeah. John Landis, he's a genius. And you know, he did an American werewolf in London. He did a very similar. Oh, effect. right, right, right. Mm -hmm. I forgot about that. Yeah. I'm kind of a movie nerd when it comes to stuff like that. So who is one either thought leader activist that's out there right now really trying to wake people up that you think would make a great political party member? Well, the person that really influenced me, that really I'd say was a big part of my, I guess, red pilling or waking up is Thomas Sowell. Mm. Oh yeah. I really- Deep, deep Tom, thing there. Thomas Sowell really inspired me. Um, he's such a good communicator and he's so straightforward. And uh, he doesn't sugarcoat things. Um, you know, honestly, it was a lot, a lot of things he has to say is a tough pill for me to swallow as a social worker, you know, that basically a lot of the social welfare programs do more harm than good. And I had to accept that because I had to listen to him and what he said made sense. Um, but he, he has a lot of great things to say. He's written a ton of books and, um, He's also, I mean, he's strong, but he's also, he's not confrontational and I, I like his style. So that's a, that's a great recommendation for sure. He's one of my favorite writers and thinkers. Yeah. If you had to raise your kids on just one book, what would the one book be? Yes. Yeah, so I, I, I don't know. I, I'd something from Dr. Seuss. I, I, <laughs> I like Dr. Seuss though. I always liked that Sneetch's book where everybody had to wear the stars and the bellies. Do you remember that book? I don't remember that book. I mean, it's basically a, I think now it's sort of a little bit banned because it basically teaches, it's is teaching kids that, so in the book, basically there are these sneeches and some of them have stars on their bellies and some of them don't. 
and they were discriminating against the one, I forget which one, the ones with the stars on their bellies. And then the moral of the story is that we don't, we don't have to worry about these stars on our bellies because we're not going to judge each other by these external things. Oh, I like that one. Maybe that, maybe that one was banned. That sounds like something that would get banned. The sneeches. Yeah. The I mean, it's, it's basically against everything that critical race theory is, is teaching now. Got it. So we talked a lot about parenting and while I know that you are a cat parent, yeah, <laughs> certainly you have a lot of expertise in what happens to kids as they're aging and growing socio-emotionally. What would you say the number one ingredient is for an input from a parent to a child? I, mean, I think the number one thing is just being present. I mean, I think that I've, every teenager or young person I've ever talked to they're always just looking for their parent to be more present with them. And just, I guess that whole quality time and not being on their phones and um, really noticing who they are, right? Listening to their kids. I, I mean, it's, it's, I guess that's cliche, but it's, it's I mean, true. It's, it's true. So it doesn't really matter if it's cliche, <laughs> it's true. And we have talked about it on this show before the idea of how profound it would be to have literally a, a basket or a box where at a certain time, every, all devices go in there. No one's allowed to touch them for a certain amount of hours. We've done that in our family before, and it can have profound effects. Yeah. So I think just a lot of times parents can't be present because they're dealing with their own emotional messiness. They're dealing with work stresses and, you know, trying to pay bills. And a lot of times we don't, ever allow ourselves to be present. So even if we're trying to play with our kids, we're multitasking. We're definitely that multitasking yeah. brain sort of human. So I think trying to get people to really put that stuff away, have dedicated time with your kids where you're not being pulled in 10 directions or, you know, playing with blocks while you're folding the laundry. I think a lot of times we try to just maximize our time because that's the world that we live in. And that's exactly the problem. Exactly. I mean, just, and that's just a good rule to live by. And we can't, it's obviously, I'm, it's unrealistic all the time, but to at least uh, work towards and not, I mean, with your kids, but in general, like when you're doing something, do it. You know, if you're petting your cat, you pet your cat because I'm a cat mom. But if you're playing with your child, play with your child. If you're folding your laundry, fold your laundry to not try to do all these multitasks because it, and it ends up diluting everything. And, th and that's what mindfulness and dialectical behavioral therapy teaches because when we're, we are multitasking, we're, we're never really present. We're never really appreciating the moment and, and to take in those moments. I, I mean, as someone who's had chronic pain, really bad pain, and really thought I was going to be severely disabled my whole life. I, and now I, sometimes I catch myself taking things for granted and then I'll be like, damn it. <laughs> and then I'll stop it. And I'll be like, okay, I'm just out for a walk or I'm just here with my husband or whatever the thing is. Even if it's something that I'm not happy doing, but I'm like, I'm alive and I'm not in pain right now. And I'm just gonna, you know, having gratitude, I guess. And so appreciating those moments with your kids. And quite frankly, like I, I, I wish I had kids. I, I couldn't have kids because I've been disabled. We were supposed to, we were actually going to adopt some kids and I couldn't do it because I was too disabled to do it. And now California has gone too crazy. We can't do it here. Um, it might happen in the future, but so appreciate, I guess, what you have. Yeah. So that's, I think, a beautiful message to end things on. And it's been so wonderful having you on the show. Surely I will want to do at least two more episodes with you because I think the two <laughs> other areas that we highlighted need to go 
you know, I think we need to go way more into depth on those ones. So you guys can find information on her at thetruthfultherapist.org. You can also follow her at thetruthfultherapist on Instagram. Is it the same handle on Twitter? I'm actually red-pilled LCSW on Twitter. Okay, Twitter red-pilled LCSW. Completely different. (laughs) Completely different, but still the same great content. Yeah. I, I should change it, but now it's there. So I don't know if I can change yeah, it. Just, yeah, just roll with it. Keep it going. People will figure <laughs> it out. I mean, I feel like most of the time people find that stuff if they're not already there by your website, which would just be more of a button anyway. So they won't even know. And I have a sub stack now too. It's Pam, the okay. truthful therapist sub stack. Okay, sweet. So everyone go check that out. Go subscribe to her monthly $5, you know, course series newsletter. It sounds like there's so much in there for $5. And I'm going to start doing consultations. Sorry, I talked over you. Oh my God, please stop it. So, and no matter what, when you're doing Zoom or Riverside or whatever, there's always, if anyone's listening to this and there's ever kind of like an odd flow at any point, it's just the internet. You know, sometimes you can't tell if someone's done because it seems like they've stopped. And then you're like, oh no, I'm talking over somebody. But no, you're, you're, you're absolutely great. Um, I really hope that all of our viewers jump into the content that you have to offer, follow you on social media and just keep following the different things that you're doing to stand in the gap for, for people that really don't know about it right now. So thank you for everything that you're doing. And I know sometimes we only see the negative when we're going through things like what Pamela went through with her chronic, chronic pain. And you can see that that chronic pain actually birthed this whole new iteration of her career. So just remember everyone listening that, you know, whether you believe in God or not, God has a plan for you. And we don't often see it when we're in the pain or in the hard part, but often what we build during those hard moments ends up being in fact, our life purpose. So don't run away or quit when things get hard. That's probably God building you up in your purpose. So Thank you so much for coming on the show. I will definitely see you next time and I will talk to you all later. Bye. Thanks for checking out this week's episode of The Modern Good. To find out more about Break Method, head to breakmethod.com and to check out my workshops and public speaking schedule, busygold.com. I'll see you next week. 